Other cultures have developed ways of thinking over thousands of years that see the world and see processes for deciding in that world mm. in, in somewhat different ways. What it does for me is remind me that some of the things that we take for granted are really not that real. If we don't challenge the way that we think, we are likely to be recreating new answers to problems with the same modes of thinking that created them in the first place. So we have to be prepared, I think, to challenge ourselves and each other about some of the assumptions that we make. Sorry, these are, these are deep and you know ridiculously philosophical comments. You know, I, I possibly wouldn't talk about this in many other settings. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Welcome to the Earth Ideas podcast. Interviews with academics, scientists and journalists about their areas of research. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 10 is split into two parts where I seek to answer the question, how will we feed this planet? In part one, I look at future technologies, agritech, AI, machine learning. In part two, we take it back and we think about polyculture, permaculture and regeneration. This is part two. To form your own opinion, take a listen now. Thank you for, um, for, for joining me. So last week I spoke to Simon Pearson who runs the um, Agritech Institute mm. at Lincoln mm. about uh, his work in trying to find ways to mm. feed everybody on the planet, right? And it was really interesting and it, it, it felt really, really like, okay, they have their heads screwed on and they think they're thinking the right way and they're, they're you know, they're certainly taking into account a lot of um, the issues that are, that are in the agricultural industry right now globally. And, um, but I, I, what I really wanted to do with these two episodes is, is look at this sort of um, debate that is uh, on both sides of this, yeah. this worry, this issue. Um, because it seems like there are really two camps of people. There's, there's loads of approaches and loads of different factors that, that go into this, but it feels like you can sort of split them between people who are thinking we need big scale, futuristic, you know, really expensive solutions that we can deploy out in the system that already exists um, and, and work with the people that are already working on it. And then there seems to be this, this other camp which is sort of saying, this needs to be looked at in a completely new way. This, this, this system needs changing. It needs to be broken down small scale, decentralized, and people need to learn you know, people need to relearn food. We need to relearn where we get it from and um, and what goes into it and uh, our relationship with it. So I, uh, I heard um, a science journalist, Charles Mann, call the two camps, he called the tech sort of robotics, AI, he called them wizards. And then he called the second camp prophets. And to me, that sort of sounds like they're the bringers of like this, this, this big news, this bad news. And they, they want to come in and shake everything up and give people a whole new way of thinking. And I mean, I, I've asked to speak to you because um, I've been told that you're, you know, a, a queen in this second camp, um, this approach. And do you think that that's a good name for 
for your approach? I'm, I'm slightly disappointed not to be able to be a witch, actually. I think, <laughs> I've, uh, in, in, a, I think in, a, in a former life, I would have um, definitely been uh, a slightly mad woman living in the woods and uh, scaring a lot of people to death. Um, maybe I still am. Who knows? Uh, I, I think that's a really, really interesting question. And... Um, it, and it's got it's got a certain attraction to it. It's got a certain attraction to say the world is either like this or like this, or you know we have two paths to choose from. Um, and and who wouldn't love to be a prophet? You know, a seer of new futures. That sounds a very attractive and compelling place to be. Mm. But I think ultimately it's still somewhat reductive of the the huge paradigm shift that actually we have to make, which is. Um, which is perhaps even more um, dramatic than even that characterization suggests. Mm. So, you know, at a very practical level, I think there absolutely is place for technological wizardry. If I'm if I'm completely honest, I'm somewhat left cold by plans to colonize Mars when we still can't get clean, fresh water to parts of Africa and India. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there needs to be a much bigger conversation between citizens of the planet to say, where, where do we choose to invest that ingenuity? Mm. Um, and, and I often think that that's a flight from facing up to some of the really big underpinning issues about the economy, about justice, fairness, how we use the resources on the planet and who gets to decide those big questions there is an archetype about the kind of you know almost the kind of the, the wise old woman who asks us some really hard questions about what matters you know if wizards if wizards characterize the kind of the drama it's and amazing. hoopla and yes mm-hmm. you see me waving my wands here you know who are, yes <laughs> um, who occupy that kind of very dramatic space mm-hmm. and if prophets are you know looking deep into the future and um, you know, inviting us to be more concerned. There's, there's, a, there's a criticality. There's, a, there's the archetype of criticality, the person who asks the really, really hard questions in the here and now about what matters and what's important, whose voices count, that possibly could do with a little bit more, a little bit more space and attention mm-hmm. right now. So what would you say, what scares you most about the wizardry side? Like, if you were if you were to take up the podium and 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 have that mm. space to criticize mm. what are the sort of biggest threats that you're seeing so i think the, the the biggest threat in that archetype is about the use and abuse of power mm. and how that's um managed how it's how it's constrained contained or boundaried for public good um and I think we we have seen over the last 30 years what increasing concentrations of power actually look like in global agribusiness. So coming back down to earth from the archetypes in the, into the gritty economic reality. Mm-hmm. In the last 20 years, we've seen massive consolidation of big global agribusinesses, you know, four seed companies vertically integrated in... Um, from controlling the seed through to the system of production through to 
the food on your plate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that whilst it's hugely efficient for those companies and gives them an enormous degree of control um, and agency about how the 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 whole value chain operates mm-hmm. it is extremely problematic for small and medium-sized enterprises actually even for countries for small countries these days whose whole public policies can be determined by the aspirations of global businesses. So these companies, they, they, they manufacture the seed and then they, they, they wrap farmers into having a contract where they can only use their seeds and then only produce their, uh, only then use their sort of products, chemicals, pesticides, whatever it may be, that work mm. with those seeds. Is that how it works? Is that how they're yeah, that's sort exactly, of... that's exactly that's exactly how it works, yeah. So um so the the um you know back to archetypes, the the, the age old systems mm. of farmers keeping keeping their seeds and um being able to grow more from the um from the leftovers of their previous harvests is getting really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. So you you often um, the, the the genetic makeup of those seeds mean that they um, that they're not necessarily fertile from one generation to the next. So you're having to buy um, more seed from the seed manufacturers year after year after year to make sure that they have the same um, characteristics, uh, the consistent ca- characteristics that locks farmers into right. a relationship with the manufacturers. And then, as you suggested, some of those seeds are um, modified or engineered to be more resistant to certain certain herbicides herbicides so we look at glyphosate resistant corn mm-hmm. and so on and then and and that in turn um, locks you into a relationship with a chemical with the same business who provides those chemicals mm-hmm. um, so that you know you can have a weed free harvest yeah but it's but it's more than that um, so those um, the, the product of the harvest goes into animal feeds and those same businesses control um, feedlots, so um, uh, meat, you know, um, and livestock feedlots and, and um, produce the finished product to sell to hospitality, to retailers and so on. So that kind of soup to nuts, you know, seed to plate, Mm-hmm. Um, value chain is now concentrated in in very few companies, and some of those are not even publicly owned. So there's not even shareholder pressure to be brought on those companies to moderate the way that that kind of power operates. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's scary because looking at the way that the system is now, if I was a farmer and someone was offering me a solution just to fix the mess that has already been created by mm. that, I'm probably just going to be like, okay, just like fix it. Give me the next tech. Give me the next chemical that's going to keep me going. That's going to see me through the next year and maybe the next 10 years. Mm. Is, it, is it possible to talk to farmers in a way? And, and, and how do we expect them to, to not take those solutions? Well, lots, lots don't, of course. So the, the, the system I just described to you, I suppose, is more prevalent in some parts of the world than others. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, but equally, both in the States and in the UK, there are plenty of farmers who don't operate under those conditions. 
there are farmers who are accredited organic or who are looking hard now at regenerative agricultural principles and practices. Mm. So one of, one of the things that we talk about in our report, again, getting, getting right back down to practicalities, is the importance of a national agroecological development bank, mm. which provides both the financial and the knowledge resources that farmers need to unpick themselves from um, a system in which they often find themselves, which is that they're increasingly reliant on certain sorts of inputs and um, advice from big agribusinesses who have products to sell, mm. but to help them shift over into agricultural practices, which often mean doing much less, which mm. often mean um, spending a lot less on those synthetic inputs, but getting much more sustainable um, outputs as a result. So I think those those are some of the practical things that, that can be done. But of course, then we require, um, you know, functioning markets. We need, uh, we need a market that recognises the cost to society of um, clearing up after the overuse of certain synthetic chemicals mm-hmm. and supports the development of more regenerative and more sustainable agricultural practices. So mm-hmm. within you know the, the, the UK Environment Bill, there's a, a principle being enacted called polluter pays. And so for, for those agribusinesses or land managers who continue to use um, synthetic chemicals which have adverse impacts on the soil, the environment, air and water, then the cost of cleaning that up or the, the cost of remedying that practice has to be borne by those manufacturers or those farmers and land managers <laughs> it seems mad that it's only just happening now though yeah it does doesn't it but that's that's the, i mean you know back to economics it is the mm. nature of capitalism that for um the large part um business seeks to maximize its own profit mm-hmm. by not paying for all of the impacts that it has in the wider environment. You know, when we talk about the agriculture bill and the, the sorts of moves that government is now making to support farmers to do more of the things that we really need farmers and land managers to do, to look after the environment that they are, you know, for which they are stewards. Mm-hmm. That is a recognition that um, at the moment um, our public... Um, well, our, our whole economy does not support people to do that. The market, the market fails. You know, the market cannot provide support for that. Although, although that that being said, um, there's some really interesting moves being made right now around the you know, carbon trading, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, how we can put a value around natural capital, natural assets, so that um, their their proper value can be. Um, first of all, understood and people can get a value for maximising their value, you know, really enhancing their value. It's it's a tricky one and there aren't any really good carbon trading mechanisms yet mm. underway, or at least it's it's a slow process. But that's one way within within the current economic paradigm. That's one way of trying to manage the extent to which um our current economic system just does not value what mm-hmm. really matters. Yeah, that is 
sort of becoming up in a, in a lot of different areas, this idea that, you know, maybe we pay countries not to chop down their trees um, because of the, the value that that gives to everybody as a, a global a global population, mm. right? Um, mm. I, I'm quite fascinated by the methods that um, are used for the sustainable, more sustainable sort of nature-friendly approach. Um, and, I, you know, they, they sort of, they're, they're things that people have been doing for hundreds, thousands of years, but now I feel like we maybe understand a little bit better why they work and are able to, to really implement them at full scale. Um, things like uh, polyculture. Like this seems like a really interesting area of research that maybe a lot of cultures sort of had um, an idea of what worked, but now we're able to, to understand it better. How, how does it, how, how is that sort of um, developing right now? So diverse systems are always more resilient systems. And yet for the last couple of hundred years, we seem to have got ourselves in the West, at least in Western thought, a view that increasing specialization and monocultures are somehow more efficient. And it's taken us um, a couple of hundred years to learn that we are wrong on that. Mm. And when we strip out um, diversity, when we take difference away from a system, it becomes more fragile, more at risk to um, sudden shocks less likely to be able to recover from that uh, and in in planting um, and in growing systems looking at the ways in which we can um, companion plant or under sow or crop together mm-hmm. is a way of recovering um, that uh, diversity in growing that as you say many people have known about for um, a very very long time and also, of course, there's so, there's so much that we still don't know. We think we're mm-hmm. such, you know, we, we think we're so scientifically sophisticated already, don't we? But I was reading some lovely stuff over the weekend around, about fungus mm-hmm. and my, mycelium, you know, the, the, the whole network and web of life that exists in the soil below the mm-hmm. ground. And mm-hmm. we, we have a deeply, deeply incomplete understanding of what that means for healthy, um, a healthy plant life and, and and healthy systems both above and, and below the ground. We're now we're now coming to understand it, and yet much of our agricultural practice for the last 30, 40, 50 years has been doing a great job at really damaging that that system, that web of life right. through through ploughing, through tilling, through breaking up soil, through spraying the soil with fungicides, herbicides and pesticides. So science, you know, thinking back to wizards and prophets, mm-hmm. actually, you know, if, if, if the wizards are sitting on the kind of scientific and technological side, science changes all the time. You know, science is actually, it's a process of inquiry and science can only ever answer the questions that are asked of it and if for the last few decades we've been asking the wrong questions of science it is unsurprising that the scientific consensus is sitting in the wrong place because it has not been looking in in the right places for some of the answers that we really need so as the science shifts 
therefore our practices and our understanding will shift and that is a good mm. thing this is that was one sort of comment that i got back after uh, posting the video last week was that um mm. oh so you're talking to the scientists and then you're talking to you know um people who are just sort of hippies or you know have like their allotments out the back and i was like no this second approach is not like anti-science this is not like anti-futuristic yeah. this is just thinking rather than trying to take the technology that we are building in other areas and apply it to the agricultural system to fix some broken things that are happening there it's looking at the science and the research that we are learning about what nature is doing without us getting involved at all and thinking what makes it work so well because it works very very well um mostly, it mostly does i mean I, I i would probably be first in the queue for a penicillin jab <laughs> if um i'd uh, you know i had an infection in my foot and i'm you know i am really grateful to um you know science for keeping my husband alive for example when he had um you know a uh, uh, heart failure so there are, there are parts of science mm. for which i am extremely grateful mm. um but to to place to place certain parts of science aspects of science on an uncritical pedestal is where i get really really nervous and i think that's back to the point that i was making earlier who decides where we do the research who decides what kind of scientific inquiry we choose to get engaged in for mm -hmm. whose benefit for what purposes so i think it's it's absolutely right to ask the question in the current scientific and research establishment who pays and who benefits i think it would be absolutely true to say that there's a great deal of investment in the kind of scientific research that can ultimately be commoditized and then sold and yeah. rather less research much less research in what we might equally value as farmer-led peer-to-peer knowledge sharing where we look at all of the ways we can do less but mm -hmm. get much better results and uh, and that balance absolutely needs to be readdressed if you were given the funding of yes if you were given a, a, a billion in funding what areas would you would you start asking scientific inquiries from mycelium i guess is one because wow that yeah. stuff is insane and we just we're only just sort of uncovering tiny bits mm. of how amazing and we have no idea how it works really so mm -hmm. what what would mm -hmm. you what would you ask i think quite a, quite a lot of the research i would like to see done will be not necessarily in the food and farming system Mm -hmm. but in systems that are, if you like, adjacent to food and farming, things like, um, so things like provenance. I'd be really interested in blockchain so we know exactly the provenance of aspects of our food system. And when, and when people are breaking international agreements, we know and we can identify um, those practices and take steps to mitigate them. So, you know, things like, you know, where our palm oil comes from or mm -hmm. where some, you know, seafood comes from, from, um, you know, fragile ecosystems. So I think that technology is very That sounds promising. great. How can, how can we apply what we know in blockchain to um, 
yeah, to keeping track of all of these systems. How does that work? So I am I am no technical expert <gasps> on this, but as I understand it, blockchain gives you much more certainty about um, about provenance mm. and that things are what they say they are and they've been produced in the way that we expect in line with contracts and agreements mm. and and um, the things that matter to us have not been undermined during that process so when we have global supply chains and I think global supply chains do still have value even though I am a huge advocate for shorter local supply chains for many things mm-hmm. I also think that for countries for other countries around the world to be able to trade in the things that they can produce really well in their own ecosystems and frankly I would like to have some of like <laughs> chocolate chocolate <laughs> and wine and, uh, and coffee <laughs> yes yes I, I'd still yeah. I'd still like to be able to have a few of those things to mm. supplement the things that I can produce in on my own farm here mm. um, but but the way those things are produced needs to be um, um, sustainable mm-hmm. um, and uh, we need to have confidence in that too um, so if for example we are in a we're entering into trade agreements which support sustainable production of farm uh, of palm oil from small and medium-sized producers who are absolutely willing to um, uh, produce that um, commodity in a in a really sustainable way, mm. not clearing whole rainforests for you know new palm oil monocultures. Mm-hmm. In order to support those, we have to be sure that. The commodities we're buying comes from those farmers and isn't, you know, adulterated or, um, uh, you know, augmented by palm oil from very unsustainable sources. So blockchain enables us to do, to do that. That sounds really exciting. I, think, I, I, I quite like. Um, I'm quite. I'm quite interested in uh, alternative sorts of protein. Um, mm. For animal feeds, one of the things that I would very much like us to stop doing is using vast tracts of land to grow um, commodity crops for animal feed. Mm-hmm. So, in uh, in in the vision that the Food Farming Countryside Commission sees for the future, where we have more regenerative um, agricultural practices around the world, then livestock, uh, meat products, or meat and dairy products come from sustainable sources. Um, and pasture-fed sources, organic mm-hmm. pasture-fed sources, ideally. Um, so I think we, we, without a doubt, we have to acknowledge that we probably need to eat a lot less of those right. products. Right, that's, that's what I was going to ask you. Is it? Is it? Yeah. Is that possible on a big scale? No, no. Yeah. Um, and um, we already know that we eat... Um, we eat too much junk food. We eat too much ultra-processed food. And very often, cheap protein in the form of chicken or beef or pork is chucked into those ultra-processed junk foods as a kind of... It's a kind of sauce carrier, basically. Um, and it's so um, true. And, that, and, it's, and that's, not, that's not necessary. Now, I, I'm a livestock farmer. I have um, beef and sheep on my farm. Uh, we have some chickens and we have some poultry too. So and and I really enjoy meat and I really understand where my meat comes from. It literally comes from my field and uh, you know ends up in my freezer. Mm. And I, I'm and I know that I'm very privileged to be able 
to do and say that. So I, I'm, I think high quality, well-produced meat is absolutely part of a sustainable, healthy diet. I'm, I'm anxious about the push towards pork and poultry because intensively produced pork and poultry in, in indoor, in sheds, essentially, relies mm-hmm. enormously on soy, mm-hmm. whether imported soy or, or homegrown commodities. Mm-hmm. And I see no reason at all why we should be using scarce and precious land to produce food for um, uh, intensively produced livestock, as well as the animal welfare considerations. Yeah. I, do, I do keep some pigs. Pigs are incredibly social creatures. They... Um, they chat to each other. They they like to wander around. They're very curious. They nest. They build little nests for themselves in in the straw. Yeah. And in some parts of the world, pigs are kept in conditions which are horrifying and would be illegal in this country. Right. So we yes. should not be supporting or encouraging or enabling those kind of food production systems. Mm. And I think that means that we all have to recognise, particularly those of us in the West, and even to some extent in developing economies like China, where the the, the consumption of pork is is really really rocketing. Yes, yeah. yeah, so that the, the the definition of a of a kind of wealthy diet can't include eating enormous quantities of meat. Mm-hmm. But I think that that actually applies right across the the economy. You know, we we were talking at the start of. Um, you know, where, where are the real challenges for us when we're rethinking a whole system? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for me, some of that is about the amount that we consume, the kind of the kind of economy that really pushes us to consume more and more and more of the Earth's resources in the name of growth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and we can't carry on like that. We absolutely carry, can't carry on like that. So for me, there are some big questions and big conversations to be had around... Um, what fair consumption really looks like and is it is it fair for wealthy countries to consume so much more of the planet's resources through food and farming systems among many others mm-hmm. um and, and is it fair even within countries you know, even within our own country when the, the fifth you know richest economy in the world and we're still um you know, we've seen a massive rise in food bank use in the uk during the coronavirus crisis but it was already a very very high base Mm -hmm. so we have such inequity in our own country yeah and you know those those are the sorts of questions that i think we will be forced to consider um, much more seriously as we imagine the kind of economy that the whole planet needs in the next 10 20 years it is as you hinted at just then saying that you know you're very lucky and privileged to be able to have the land that you you have you know mm. a lot a lot of people who eat this over processed very mm. meat sodium heavy um meals is because that's all that's really available in this country and in in others too um although it seems like this amazing you know wealthy developed diet it's like a lot of people are, are eating McDonald's because it's cheap. And it's right. sociable. I, I think one of the things that we we often misunderstand, and I, I was absolutely guilty of this myself um, until some years ago when I had a very 
um, frank conversation with with colleagues was that um, very often people who don't have much money to spend on food are not going to McDonald's because it's especially tasty or, or nutritious. They're going to McDonald's because it is a social experience mm. and it's, you know, it's going out to eat, it's giving the kids a treat, it's participating in a social process mm. that people with more money and resources take for granted, going to the pub, going out to restaurants, going out for dinner. Mm. So the, the social aspect of food, the, 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 the kind of longing that we all have, most of us have, to be more convivial over food. You know, food, food is the is the centerpiece of many of our big, big celebrations. You know, for all religions and all cultures, you know, food becomes um, the, the the kind of richness of that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. That's what draws us and, out. And if you look at some of the adverts that we see all the time on telly, the ones that we take for granted, parents, often mothers, providing cheap over-processed foods for their kids is is reconstructed as an act of love mm-hmm. uh you know i'm not even going to mention the names of the companies because i guess you, you know, we, could, we could all we could all have a little bit of think about it but they're, but they're almost seductions into you know buy this prawn ring you know buy these sausage rolls put them on the table have the family around and it's a feast mm-hmm. so it's it is speaking to the psychology of connection it's not a, not about food and nutrition at all it's about connection participation and and conviviality which are really really deep human needs in a world that often feels even more disconnected and fragmented it definitely seems to be one of the the most common strains people talk about when they try to reduce their meat consumption mm-hmm. is like well you know what if my partner doesn't want to do it? What, how do we eat together? Mm. And how, you know, what if I go for a meal at someone's house and they don't want to provide something else? And as well, mm. like food is a very like sensitive issue. I feel like we're all a little bit like when we talk about our diets, like we, we love to mm. talk about it. We don't like to be questioned about it, really. And mm. it's it's quite like a, a deeply emotional thing. And that is a problem mm. when it's so closely tied to money as well. Um, what we yeah. can afford to feed ourselves and our families um, mm. is a question. But I think we're quite lucky here in the UK. It seems like every time I go to the US, fruit and vegetables are so much more expensive than you know a packet of crisps and stuff like that. And here it seems at the moment we've got quite a good, good thing going with mm. that. It's it's not it's not bad, but it could be much much better. Mm. Um, so supermarkets don't do too badly at putting you know a wide range of fresh offers. You know, as as you go in, it's the first aisles. Mostly, it's the first aisles you come to. You know, lovely, you know, arrays yeah. of you know fresh fruit and veg colors. Um, yes, yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And I think lots lots of the biggest supermarkets are really taking much more seriously their responsibilities to encourage people to buy more of those sorts of foods mm. but we could do so much could do so much better so one of, one of the projects that i'm working on at the moment in wales is to look at ways that we can support the development of more horticultural production more fruit and vegetable production really close to communities particularly closer to 
poorer communities, which shortens the supply chain dramatically. So it goes from field to plate in, mm. in some cases, 300 yards um, and provides good work for um, young people or new entrants who want to work in um, food and farming or food production mm. and provides easy access to really high quality, fresh fruit and vegetables for people in that community. Now, that that does all sorts of things. You know, it, it provides good work, it shortens supply chains and so reduces the carbon um, impact of the, of those of that fruit and veg it mm. gives people that same that that relationship with um uh the, a, a kind of community infrastructure the food infrastructure of a community mm. that it feels really important to um to strengthen again and um and it's it's still affordable. It's still really really affordable because you're stripping out many of the additional costs in that system. So it's a fair price for producers, and mm. it's a fair price for customers, um, and it's building the social capital of that community in the process. So mm. I think th- those are the sorts of initiatives that have multiple value and and co benefits around them. You mentioned earlier about still wanting foods from all over the world and still wanting this very diverse and, and wealthy diet that we have. What, what do you think is better, um, flying a tomato in during like January or something or producing that kind of thing in a greenhouse here in the UK or trying to convince people that we can't have tomatoes at certain times of the year? What In your, in the, the the economy in the future that you would build well you know i think i think it i think it varies actually and i think it's quite difficult to offer a kind of quick silver bullet answer Mm. to to that kind of a question so in the uk we're very close to the netherlands that's invested an enormous amount in the sustainable production of salad crops depending on the relationship that we have with the european union after brexit it it might make sense to carry on um, a relationship with a country that's already made those big big investments in mm. um, in that kind of production in tomato production, um, but also I think we can we can as, as we said earlier on the most resilient systems are diverse systems, so whilst the Netherlands might be the kind of tomato capital of the world. I think I might be, I think that might be actually true. I have to check the stats on that. <laughs> There's no reason at all why in you know, my county in Monmouthshire, there may be um, people who are also willing to grow tomatoes and salad crops and, and other products earlier and later in the season through you know, using polytunnels. So, and, 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 and in doing that, they provide a range of local fruits and vegetables and, um, you know, meat and dairy from sustainable systems that are, that, that take more responsibility for us as a community to meet our core needs, you know, our core nutritional needs. Mm. And then, and then for those other nice to have, you know, like, you know, a bottle of red wine with my local cheese yeah. or, uh, you know, a lovely square of dark chocolate after after my strawberries. Mm. Then we have progressive trading relationships with mm-hmm. countries in other parts of the world who are equally trying to develop regenerative and sustainable food systems. 
So it, w it does seem quite a sort of complex area that needs lots of little, little answers. Um, mm, but it's still yeah. possible. We can still have all of these things that we have um, as long as we take into account what we know. Yeah, I think, yes, I, I'm, I'm, I talk about the need to be more frugal. I'm not very good at that, truth be told. <laughs> I would be sad not to have <laughs> you know, a, you know, a glass of wine and a square of chocolate. Um, but I also know that we can't always have what you know everything that we want. You know that that's mm. a that's quite a you know it's a childish and narcissistic viewpoint to think that we can always all have everything that we mm. desire. And in fact, you know governments put constraints in place to set boundaries around what is appropriate social behaviour. So we can't you know we can't drive Ferraris at eighty miles an hour through village streets. Mm. because it's dangerous we mm -hmm. have to put seat belts on when we drive a car because the impact on our lives and our health is too serious if we don't we can't smoke in public places anymore and we mm -hmm. can't deal in drugs even if you know on the face of it such a thing might you know give us a moment of pleasure fleeting pleasure mm. so we we are used to governments telling us what to do and to making sure that um, all citizens can live um, safer lives. First, it's the first rule of government, keep citizens safe. Yeah. So it may be that we have to start thinking about coming to terms with the need to um, constrain consumption, you know, mm -hmm. what we have, when we have it, and recognise that as lovely as it is, um, we have to put boundaries around what it is that we want because it is just not good not fair not equitable for everybody on the planet yeah. for, for some people to be able to live like that it's exactly as you were saying earlier it's it's about fair if, if we have a mm. lot there are other people that won't have a lot and yeah. that is exactly how um mm. how it has gotten to be and then there are other people who have very, very, very much more. Um, how did you, what was your sort of journey into coming to think like this? Have you always had a farm? So I'm, I'm from the Welsh Valleys. I come from the Rhondda Valley originally. Which oh, is you don't, you, you've community. lost your accent, it sounds like. <laughs> I have, I have lost my accent. It sometimes comes back <laughs> when I go, go home. But I'm, I am very much from the Welsh Valleys and lots of my family still live there. Mm -hmm. um, my father went down the lines uh, when he was 15 and um, went to night school and studied hard and became a colliery manager. He was the last of the manager cohorts to have started, you know, from age 15 right. and, and then become a minor. Um, after him, pretty much everybody had gone the university route. But some of my family in Wales mm -hmm. were, still are, smallholders and farmers. My Grandfather, great grandfather, great great grandfather were famous horse breeders and um, big prize winners in oh. in Royal Welsh Show local shows, mm -hmm. and um, my cousins continue to be you know well known breeders, dogs and chickens now, but still horses actually still got um, you know uh, an interest in horses, and I I breed some horses here too as well. Oh, wow. So, um, so my family, so, so I, I, I grew up, um, in Wales, um, without, 
not living on a farm, but still feeling that, that was part of my heritage and still you know part of my background. Um, and I came and and actually for for many, many years, um, my father and I, when I was a little girl, we would we would talk about you know how lovely it would be to be able to live on a farm. It was a little bit my father's dream as well. Mm. He'd spent many summers and um, through his childhood working on his uncle's farms, and um, we used to fantasize about it. We used to fantasize about it when I was a little girl. And it wasn't until I got to my thirties, I suppose, late twenties, thirties, that I started to think that this might be more, you know, it might be a dream that we could um, bring to life. And uh, it was, you know, it's quite, it's quite a moment when you think that um, a thing that has felt so very out of reach might indeed be possible. Mm. And so we moved here 20 years ago. We found this farm 20 years ago and I moved here with my parents so wow. it's a it's an old Welsh longhouse. It's a really pretty old Welsh longhouse, and um, my father's died now, but my mother still lives Sorry. in the end cottage, and we live in the in the main house. And um, it has it it felt for both my father and me, it felt like a kind of coming home. That you know we had found a place that was absolutely the right place for us mm. so it's just a joy every day and a privilege to be able to live here and to bring my own children up here mm. my children have grown up here now and have you know I've I think feel pretty similarly about the place as I do we are yeah. we are so lucky we are very very dream lucky and very true. privileged it is literally yeah. <laughs> literally oh. a dream come true yeah and it's because mm. of this sort of how much it means to you to be able to steward the land and and keep live live animals there that has got you sort of thinking about what really matters at my college i i I won a scholarship to a sixth form college when i was um 16 an international sixth form college and the mission of that sixth form college was um, a pattern of education for peace and a more sustainable future so I suppose my eyes were being opened. This was in the, you know, 1979, so a long time ago, probably before many of your listeners were even born. Um, so it was it was quite a radical education at the time. And so my eyes were being opened even then mm. to what um, more sustainable futures might look like. Although coming from the Welsh Valleys, you know, that's, that's quite a radical place, actually. And, you know, issues of fairness and justice are just below the surface all of the time Mm -hmm. in in those communities so I had that I suppose as my bedrock um and I'd had um I'd had a kind of uh a a theoretical interest in those issues for some time but you're absolutely right to say that coming here and living here being here Mm. and you know coming to understand this place changes that theoretical that abstract understanding in such dramatic ways so one one of the extraordinarily beautiful aspects of of this place is that we have um around five acres of ancient coppiced woodland which is a really beautiful it's not a spiritual place it's a it's mm. a really special place to go and to go and stroll through and um and at the edge of the 
of that little bit of woodland is some wetlands. So we have two streams that run through and two big ponds. Uh, and then we have some wetland, uh, which is another ecosystem. And then it moves up the hill to some more woodland. Mm. We've put in some very wide hedgerows. And then we have wild edges uh, that we've both, that we some of which we inherited, but we've also grown and created, which um, sustain really lovely wildlife corridors, habitat corridors and ecosystems mm. um, in this neck of the woods. So you begin to understand in a really grounded, really visceral, connected way how ecosystems work yeah. and how as tempting as it is to keep doing things and, you know, um, managing them. Actually, as you hinted at earlier, very often it's better to do much less and let you know, just just understand how that particular ecosystem works really well. And there's mm. no point trying to, you know, sort out the drainage and reroute the drainage over and over again in that particular field. It's always going to be a wet field. Mm. Uh, and and actually having a wet field, having some wetland in that part of the farm is a really, really important habitat. And it's a really rare habitat these days. We've got about 25 acres of ancient... Um, meadow of old hay meadows and and for much of the summer they are they're not green at all they're full of color pinks and blues and whites yellows and and that's the um that's the enormous variety of flora that comes through in old grassland meadows when they haven't been plowed up and reseeded plowed up and reseeded and managed for grass which is in itself a bit of a uh, a monoculture crop Mm. and Mm. so we have we have we keep stock that since so instead of thinking that's not nutritionally um, valuable enough to grow livestock, we we keep rare breeds who flourish on unimproved grassland where there's a lot more species in that sward than there is just grass. There's a herbal lay um, flourishing there too. So those animals do really well in that kind of ecosystem they support Mm. it they regenerate it and they themselves thrive on it Mm. Um, and you and you get to you know doing the work in a really kind of hands-on way enables me to understand it properly it enables me to be I think a bit more empathetic when I say to other farmers you know this could work because I know it's I know it's scary to let go of you know old knowledge or things that you think you know Mm -hmm. but maybe aren't working for you anymore you're being told yes yes yeah and it's scary to deal with that but and sort of talking to them you know like I'm not coming from the government trying to enforce something on you I'm not coming from some campaign group trying to change things for you Uh, this is working for me and this is what is working best for the planet and you can talk to them on that level and I think that that is very very valuable yeah and it's a pleasure for me as well it's a real pleasure for me to be able to work with others who have that have a have a curiosity Mm. um about the way the world works and a kind of sense of urgency about wanting to make things better yeah. Not just for themselves, but for but for others too. And yeah. that's that's a real privilege to be able to work in that space. You know, living with it and living with... I mean, we haven't brought our hay in yet this year. We don't cut our hay until after July. And this year, our hay was really... Our grass was really slow to grow. The hay was really slow to grow because of the, the floods and then the drought. 
we're not allowed to cut it. We wouldn't cut it anyway until the end of July, until the flowers have seeded. Mm. And, and, and now it's been raining all August. So we've not cut our hay. And so the uncertainty now that we're managing about how we're going to feed our livestock through the winter is really starting to kick in. And we're having to work through plan B and plan C right. to right. to mitigate that risk. So um, so we feel it. It's not just that we know it, we feel it. We feel yeah. it in our You're bones. You're living through and, it. Yeah. 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 This is um this this is sort of the definition of permaculture, right? It's looking at everything that you've got going on here and um, assessing mm. things uh, on local conditions, on on as things are changing, and sort of being adaptive to the land rather than enforcing some sort of predetermined. Right. That's exactly it. Plan mm. on them. That's exactly it. Yeah. And does it make you feel? differently about the idea of like owning a farm like it, it sounds sort of like you you know you've moved and you're you know you're here to to make use of it and to sort of keep it ticking and going but um that it's it's the land in itself mm. and that it, it it is its own thing yeah absolutely Do you know most farmers that i know at least don't really think about owning the land in the same way that we might think about, you know, owning a car. Really? They see themselves as stewards of the land. Right. Stewards stewards of something that they are, you know, if all goes well, um, and, you know, and if it works out that way, something that they can pass on to future generations. So they see themselves as stewards, not owners, mm. by and large. I know that's not, that's, you know, that's not always true, but certainly in my experience um, of the farmers land managers that I know um, in my area they've often you know come to their farms after generations they've inherited things from their parents their grandparents it's often a family enterprise they're deeply deeply interconnected in the whole family with the work that goes on there Um, so I you know I I realize that there are some really really serious issues to be resolved around land ownership and how young people can um uh can come to you know own land or or develop land-based careers when land is now so very very expensive and it's so difficult Mm -hmm. to to buy or or to find um but I think there are um there are some quite creative conversations to be had in that space particularly now you know we're thinking about the sorts of um patient finance that is genuinely interested in entering this sector to support more regenerative practices in the long term and you know are willing to invest in land on very 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 modest rates of return and who want to support different farming practices good work good work for young people and new entrants because they understand all of the kind of pro-social benefits and the you know ecological benefits that has for the long term mm. so i think there's i think there's space for much more innovation and creativity in mm. these conversations and i know that the, the work we're doing around the agroecology development bank is rooted in those sorts of conversations you spoke about that earlier and um, obviously I've had a, a look at um, the work that 
the Food Farming Countryside Commission has done so far and the, the big report that sort of launched that. Um, what is it that you're sort of working on um, now? Like what do you see coming up in the next few years for you? We're working on the idea of a land use framework, um, a, a process by which um, people, institutions, organisations, communities with different needs, different interests, different priorities can work through how land is used in any given space based on um, kind of core principles of um, you know, mitigating, reversing climate change, restoring mm. biodiversity and nature, um, giving people access to nature for health and well-being but also providing housing, infrastructure, energy, you know, all of the things that we need from our land. There's mm -hmm. some huge questions embedded in that. And at the moment, they're often, you know, decisions are either taken uh, in a rather opaque and disjointed way, um, or you know, people, you know, the, the arguments get really angry and contested mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a really, really um, difficult way. You know, one of the... Um, arguments at the moment are between people who want to see um, uh, rewilding mm -hmm. on land and, and other people who um, are more concerned and anxious about that and wonder where we might get you know food from and uh, you know, the, the other needs that we have on land. So those are big, big questions that need a proper process of mediation and um, and discussion in a, mm. in a more fair, equitable and just way. So we're really interested in that. Mm. One of the big things that we're working on right now, and it was this was not a piece of work I was expecting us to do, because I thought other people were all over this topic, but <laughs> I, I, I fear that perhaps after all they're not, and that's about trade. Right. That's um that's about um the kinds of trade arrangements that this country will have with other countries around the world when we leave the European Union at the. Um, end of this year mm -hmm. and uh, how we decide that what mm -hmm. you know what what really matters what kinds of trade deals we want to strike what impact that will have on us in the UK or indeed in our relationships with other countries around the world what would a really progressive and inspiring trading policy really really look like if we had climate nature health and well-being now and for future generations at its heart. So we're just about to start a chunk of work on that. We've 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 launched it. We're doing it in a fairly low key way, but it's but it's intended to um, to explain to people, citizens, as well as policymakers, why these are really really important questions. Why these matter. Why the questions right. matter. Mm -hmm. um, it's intended to bust a few myths about trade, about what's okay and what's not okay, what's possible and what's not possible. Mm. There's a lot of, a lot of highly technical stuff taught, you know, brought up in terms of trade conversations, which for the likes of, I mean, I'll say for me, I don't, you may be a trade expert, uh, a trade geek behind the scenes, but I, well, okay, I, judging by the look on your face, very confusing. You're, 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 with, you're with me on that one. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, there's a whole load of stuff that gets talked about, which just yeah. makes me glaze over. Uh huh. And yet I know it's really really critical. So we're wanting to um, shine a little light on those sorts of questions and explain mm. to citizens why trade matters for mm. all those aspects of our lives 
which we might not expect, like trade and health, like trade and mm. jobs and trade and nature. Mm. So we're going to be um, producing a series of pieces, papers, podcasts, webinars. Mm. Um, I'd be really interested to talk to you again after you've sort of done the, uh, a bulk of that work because that sounds, yeah, like um, it's a very foggy area, a lot of things that I don't understand mm. and a lot of mm. factors mm. Um, but mm. as you say it's, it's fundamental in how everything mm. kind of gets around mm. the world right um mm. you, you 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 sort of say talking about um we and the idea of fairness and and who gets to make the important decisions and and how the information is mm. spread who who do you mean when you want the decisions to be made by the right people or in the right way. Parliamentary scrutiny would be a jolly good start. <laughs> At the moment, it there is there's no promise of parliamentary scrutiny of trade deals. We live in a parliamentary democracy, mm. and that means that our representatives, our MPs, um, scrutinise government policy proposals, and in that scrutiny, work together to make sure they're as good as they need to be, as good as they should be. And we have a second chamber in the House of Lords who also brings a, another layer of scrutiny. Now, there is a lot to be said about our current parliamentary democracy, how well it's working and whether the House of Lords is an appropriate second chamber for a developed mm. democracy. There's all sorts of political arguments to be made around that. But right now it's what we've got. And what we've got right now is not being properly used in service of the critical decisions that we are now needing to make as a country. Mm. And and so it would be a great start if um, our government and parliament were, a, were able to return to the kinds of productive relationships with real scrutiny that are likely to get the best possible decisions made. And so for that, I think citizens need to understand why that's important. And citizens can then put pressure on their own elected representatives to um, embolden them to say in Parliament and to their own um, parties why it is really, really important to have transparent, open, fair discussions and debates where mm. the underpinning principles and values that are being drawn on in order to make those decisions, to make those judgments, are clear and open, you know, yeah. open to scrutiny. Yeah, and as you were saying about citizens being more informed, I think that's a, but and a sort of an attack from both sides. Um, mm -hmm. I certainly feel like I have a little bit more of a fair understanding about this question, um, and sort of where people imagine the future to be um, and there was part of the conclusion that I sort of what we came to in the end of the last episode was that it may take both sides sort of working together one keeping the other in check mm. but really it mm. seems like there are two very different futures that could be imagined here and yes definitely there's a lot to be learned from both sides but um, the the way that the world may work that may turn out um, if if we were to sort of do the middle, maybe um, I don't know, not so conclusive. So um, it's a really interesting 
kind of mental construction, isn't it? That we mm. that we imagine that there are two choices and the middle is somehow um the least useful. It's it, you know, it's a kind of sludgy <laughs> common denominator, if you like, the lowest common denominator. Right. Or or a compromise position. Um and that's and that is a feature of Western thought. It's a feature of Western thought that thinks there are two sides to an argument, mm-hmm. that you know, you debate and dialogue is about opposing positions. That's, that is not the way the world is. That is a function of the way that we think it is. And therefore, we, we act in it as if that were true. Mm. The way uh, we other, try to understand it is Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, other cultures have developed ways of thinking, other countries have developed ways of thinking over thousands of years that see the world and see the processes for deciding in that world in, in somewhat different ways. So, I mean, there are, these, these are really, these are, sorry, these are, these are deep and, you know, ridiculously philosophical I love comments, it, but, I love it. <laughs> but, and, 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 you know, I, I possibly wouldn't, talk about this in many other settings because it's it's a little bit um unproductive ultimately but i think what it what it does for me is remind me that some of the things that we take for granted are really not that real Mm. and when we're working in really complex times as we are right now times full of uncertainty and anxiety we have the coronavirus crisis, the global health pandemic that we're dealing with right now, as well as all of the challenges around climate and nature and the sorts of actions that the world can take mm. to make sure that we are, you know, we have a planet for our children, my grandchildren. Um, that actually it kind of matters that we test the way that we think, that we challenge the way that we think. Because the way that we think is not necessarily the same as the way the world is. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if we don't challenge the way that we think, we are likely to be recreating new answers to problems with the same modes of thinking that created them in the first place. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. you know, Einstein's famous phrase, we can't hope to um, address the problems with the same thinking that created them. So we have to be prepared, I think, to challenge ourselves and each other about some of the assumptions that we make. And then all that being said, all that being said, ultimately we need to find practical ways of getting on with life. We need to find practical ways of moving forward because I think I've come to the view over the years that um, by and large, you know, great revolutionary changes have really serious impacts on the poor, the poorest and the most vulnerable. So um, mm. I am always concerned to think through practical actions mm. that make the world more fair, more equitable, more transparent, more just, mm. more sustainable and more regenerative. So that's who I think of as we. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, I, th- I think that what gives, you know, what really is a, a good thing is that there are lots of these practical methods and solutions and um, and, yes. and things that people are working on and people working mm. on them, lots of people working on them. Mm. Although this may not be a sort of one question, two answers, you know, take your pick. Mm. It, it, it is certainly, this is an area of work and mm. there are 
lots of different things that are happening in them, actual things that are moving forward on both sides, on all levels. Um, and yeah, we, we, will, we will always keep pushing forward because that is what humans do. <laughs> we will always keep trying to get there. Um, mm. But it's been really wonderful talking to you about all of this today. So thank you. Thank you. You too. Um, you too. It's not. It's not often I start a chat with prophets and wizards, but it was really, really entertaining and yeah, and, and challenging and thought provoking. Thank I you. I loved. I loved um, your opening about wanting to be a uh, a witch, and then and then um, you know, very <laughs> the wise woman that comes in um, to talk some sense into us all. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think as as you may have spotted, I do in fact have my own little bit of wild woodland that I can go and. Um, yeah hide in if all yeah. else fails <laughs> yes have a great rest of your day thank you so much you too bye for now bye, bye.